Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. When I think of Herb Donaldson and Evander Smith, I think of delicious homemade pie. That's because I interviewed the two longtime friends in Evander's San Francisco kitchen over generous slices of pecan pie. I first read about Herb and Evander when I was researching the January 1st, 1965 costume ball at San Francisco's California Hall. It's sometimes called the West Coast Stonewall because it wound up being a huge and very public confrontation with that city's police department. The ball was a fundraising event for a new organization called the Council on Religion and the Homosexual, or CRH. It brought together progressive ministers and local gay rights groups with the goal of educating the city's religious communities about discrimination and anti-gay violence. Herb Donaldson and Evander Smith were among the CRH founders. Herb and Evander met on a San Francisco beach in 1962, and the two young attorneys became fast friends. Herb had a private practice, Evander had a corporate job, but secretly helped Herb with gay cases on the side. Coincidentally, both had life partners named Jim. You'll hear me refer to Herb's lover in the interview, which is what we called life partners back in the late 1980s. Some quick background on the two men. Herb Donaldson was born in West Virginia in 1927. When Herb was a year and a half old, his father was killed in a mining accident, and his mother moved him and his two brothers to Wisconsin to be near family. He served eight years in the Navy and then earned his law degree at Stanford. Evander was born in Georgia in 1922 and raised in Alabama. His father was a minister of Scottish descent and his mother was Native American. After law school, he went to Anchorage, Alaska and eventually settled in San Francisco. So here's the scene. It's a perfect San Francisco evening and the sun has just set when I pull into the driveway of Evander's huge house. It's a beautifully kept beige stucco two-story colonial in the city's gorgeous Forest Hill neighborhood. I'm 15 minutes late, so I dash up the steps of the long front walk. I hate being late. Evander greets me at the door with the kind of warmth I think of as Southern hospitality, and he brushes aside my apologies. He hadn't even noticed, he says, although I'm not so sure I believe him. Evander leads me through the house to the expansive kitchen where Herb is waiting. Herb has a full head of white hair and striking blue eyes. 
We take our seats around a three-sided island, and while I set up my equipment, Evander asks if I'd like to have some pie. I don't object. And once the pie is served, and we're two or three bites in, I clip the mics to Herb and Evander's dress shirts, and I press record. Interview with Evander Smith and Herb Donaldson, Thursday, September 21st, 1989. Location is the home of Evander Smith in San Francisco, California. Interviewer is Eric Marcus, tape one, side one. Uh, Evander, E-V-A-N-D-E-R, Smith. Herbert, H-E-R-B-E-R-T, Donaldson, D-O-N-A-L-D-S-O-N. Now, how did you come to be involved with with this this infamous... uh, CRH dance. Mm-hmm. There was a group of us who formed the CRH. Right. Clay Carwell, Chuck Lewis, Ted McElvaney, Louis Durham, yes. Cecil Williams. I forget Cecil. Oh, absolutely mm-hmm. not Cecil Williams. Uh, Bob uh, Cromie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that nucleus. Bob Burns, well, he was one of the Methodists. And Chuck Lewis. Did mm-hmm. we name him? And then the other gay organizations, and actually there were half a dozen of them, a lot of them were just simply on paper, though, uh, uh, and they decided they were going to have a fundraiser for the CRH, to, in other words, to get it started. And so they were going to have, it was going to be a Mardi Gras on New Year's night. Right. So it'd be January 1st. Yeah, the night right. of January 1st. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> because everyone wanted to do it just right. Evander and I were involved in meeting with the police to make sure that there wouldn't be any police interference. Because at that time, the police took the position that the only time you could dress up in drag was on Halloween. And this was going to be a gala affair in which if you wanted to go in drag, you could. And it wasn't Halloween. It wasn't Halloween. (laughs) And then the police went back on their word. But they told us in advance that they had changed their minds. And and you said you got a phone call from Hal and Carl? We, we went down to see Hal and Don, and they were all shook up. They said that the cops had been there, and I gave them an ultimatum that they were to get this message out to these queer ministers, as they referred to them. Ministers who love queers, if they weren't queer themselves, they were queer lovers. They were going to get rid of uh, all these people by arresting them. And the police had blocked off the intersections all around California Hall. Right. And they were, had their bikes, uh, motorcycles, and they also had the black Mariahs or station paddy wagons, whatever they're called. And they had their helmets, the right gear. They would not have been even better prepared if they had gone there with the gangsters with machine guns to fight them. And they had stated previously uh, that they were going to make mass arrest, and then it did, as Herbert pointed out, come out at our trial, that they had 200 placards printed up, numbers ready for that many arrests. When they, when they told you that they were planning this, what, what did you do? All we could do is to then see if they were going to uh, go through with their threats. So what actually happened then that night? We were the attorneys there at the door, and we were there to to make sure that everything was on the up and up so that there couldn't be any reason to make any arrests. And then they they started coming in, making inspections. They were the plainclothes police. They would come in. I remember there was a fire inspection. 
That's right. There was we a, had there was several. A, there was a health yeah. inspection. Right. And I think it was about the fourth inspection we just said. Where we said that's enough inspection. That we said, no. If you want to come in. And Either give us your ticket or the search warrant. And it, was, it, was, it really was completely unplanned. They didn't know what to do and we didn't know what to do. <laughs> were, you, were you standing facing each other? Or? Yes, we were frightened. We were just standing there and they were standing there because, you know, they didn't know what to do either. They didn't. They didn't believe that we would stand them all. The hallway in that building is about as wide as this kitchen is wide, okay? And Herbert and I were standing uh, abreast with each other and literally leaning to each other because I think we were both so nervous that we would have fallen down and we hadn't had someone to lean on. To my right, you could run a motorcycle through. And to Herbert's left, you would have been able to run a motorcycle and, and through. And they could have gone right past us, and except they... They didn't know what they were. Right, they, were they were afraid of us, too. <laughs> right. Then all of a sudden, there were a whole bunch of police in uniform came in. I, I thought that, you know, when police arrested you, they said, you're under arrest. And I just... And I, they never did and they, tell us and that. And they, they grabbed me, one on each side, and I said, am I under arrest? I mean, what a silly question. Am I under arrest? They were hauled, and they'd already hauled you out to yes. the paddy wagon. <laughs> and then they put us in jail. They sure as the hell did. But for a while, they they they, they really they didn't, still didn't quite know what, know what to, to do. do because we would. I mean, we could get out. We could use the telephone to call. <laughs> anyway, but so then, uh, did we or did did, did Malcolm call Glickfeld for us? No, we actually called him from the, the jail. You called him from the jail, Judge Glickfeld. Yeah, yeah. Judge Bernard Gifford. Insane, yeah. but a doll in many ways. Because because he ordered us released on our own recognizance. Then and anything there. further. But we had to go over and be booked. We had to go first. over and be booked. And after we got out, Herbert said to me, that booking officer that takes your photographs and fingerprints and so forth paid you a real compliment. And I thought, well, gee, did he want to maybe have a date with me or what? And I said, well, what kind of compliment did he pay me? And he says, well, he told me that uh, you were the nicest American Indian he'd ever met. And they don't get many American Indians in here that are nice. Because he'd, right. he'd given his uh, nationality as American Indian. Right. right. Well, I, and I always put that down. And he said you were the nicest American Indian yeah. he'd ever met. <laughs> because some of the Indians that he sees in the booking process, you know, the poor guys are drunk. And it's, it's uh -huh. a bad scene, uh -huh. you know. Then we went back. Well, somebody took us back over there. And the place was in chaos. Mm. So this was later in the evening. Yeah, yes. later in the evening, and uh, it was a wake. It was like a wake. What was going on? What do you mean by it was in chaos? I mean, uh, the, so they the, had the police were walking in and out across the dance floor. I mean, like they'd taken over the place. They had. They yeah. had taken it over. It, they had completely uh, cleared. And then, the and some of some of the people were just terrified, especially the school teachers. I remember this couple of women who were school teachers, and they were they had to be they wanted to be sneaked out the back way so that because they were taking pictures of everybody as they left. Oh yeah, they continued, they continued that. They didn't make any more arrests. Everybody who was coming and who was leaving. They didn't make any more arrests, but they did continue to say to make the Well, they did arrest those two guys who were, who were standing on chairs to look at something, remember? Yeah, I'd forgotten all about that. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember what happened to that. Well, they we represented them and they were convicted. <laughs> what were they convicted for? Lewd conduct. Two guys at the dance. Yes, uh huh. Because the police, the police, they had to show that all this police had been legitimate. Hey, yeah, uh, so they charged these guys with fondling each other. They hadn't been fondling each other, and Evander represented one, and I represented the other. And when the jury came in, 
Judge Lazarus said, he said, you know, I never expected that. He didn't think they were going to be convicted. And then he said, well, they've suffered enough. I'll, I'll yeah, I remember it, yeah. Mm -hmm. But you see the tragic life there? Because those poor uh, guys... They didn't do anything. They have to put down that I was arrested at a lewd uh, mm -hmm. dance, performing a lewd uh, act well, with another time, man. That time, 647A was registrable. Remember under... Yes, you know, indeed. There are many people... So they couldn't be hired by the federal government? They could not... Oh, no. Oh, no. No, no. No. Absolutely not. And if they had had a credential, it would have been taken away. It would become mm -hmm. would, yeah, they'd have proceedings taken away. Right. Sometimes, <clears throat> Yvonne and I will talk, and the kids coming up now, they they can't. I tell you, they can't enjoy their freedom as much as we have because they take it for granted that it was always like this that they could walk arm in arm and kiss on the street and so forth. And uh, I mean, I've represented several couples who were arrested for having hand on the other's knee in a bar. I mean, something as innocent as that. Were you frightened at any point when you were arrested? I mean, this was not something you did routinely. No, uh, I mean, what happens is circumstances just carry you along. Yeah. Uh, and I'll tell you, when we went home, oh, Jim and I, we went to bed, and I, I was so touched because he said, oh, I'm so proud of you. Because I was really feeling kind of low, because I thought, I mean, there goes my legal career. This is yeah. Junior Lover. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Poor Evander was fired from his job. I got up early the next morning, went down to uh, get the uh, Chronicle. And of course they had our names. And there it was on the front names page. Names and addresses. And I was just sick and I thought, oh shit. So the papers, um, in all references, have always put a demeaning attitude toward people who are gay. And uh, this now was reflected in this uh, biased article that they wrote about the dance, you see. And uh, when I went to work after having been arrested, boy, just my own secretary, nobody would have anything to do with me. I knew something was wrong. So finally I was given a formal letter on Wednesday and asked not to come back until Friday. So I then thought, well, there is nothing short of a total earthquake to sink the city that will keep me from being fired come noon Friday. Therefore, you know, I think I'll go out with my self-respect. So I called Cecil Williams up and I said, now, I don't expect you to do anything or say anything and I don't want you to think I'm using you in a bad sense but Cecil I'm using you for the same purpose that people use a condom rubber for I'm just going to use you for show and he said do you want me to pick you up or you want to pick me up I, we got down there and uh, they were shocked, to say the least, so they... They were shocked by what? By the fact that I had brought someone with me. But when they saw that I had this black man with me, <laughs> and, and he, I asked him also to wear his Roman garb, so he had his uh, uh, Roman collar on, they tried to excuse the reverend. They uh, said, Reverend, this is a personal matter. Would you please excuse us? I said, if he does, I leave too. You know, I can be very effective on my feet, so uh, I I took this show away from them. So the air must have been thick in the room at that moment. 
everybody was frightened. In a courtroom, I'm not frightened, but I was frightened then because, well, oh, there goes your security. Yeah, I was just going to say my economic security was at stake. It was the greatest thing they ever did for me. I'm, I don't look back. I was never sad about it. I went home and faced up to reality with Jim and explained to him, look, for Christ's sakes, I'm a member of the bar. Uh, you know, I can make a living. I didn't have a job when I was born. But we, uh, Eric, we sued, Herbert and I, we sued the city and county. They knew mm. that we had a good case. At our criminal trial, we must have had 25 of the prominent criminal lawyers in town right. listed on as of counsel. I mean, you had the ministers, you had the Civil Liberties Union representing us, and... Uh, and those, those ministers now and their wives would dress up to their Sunday go-to-church clothes. Uh, always they would the collars. Yes, and they would come and sit, you see, in oh, the right. audience. At the trial. This was so important that the prospective jurors and the jury itself see the support, they realize that, look, there must be something worthwhile here. The police the police have got some legitimate people in here. The, the defendants, you mean? Or the, the police? Well, the police had some legitimate people ensnarled into their traps, what I meant to imply. Do you have any regrets about that dance, about being arrested? None whatsoever. No, it was actually, it was, a, it was a, one of the peak experiences. I mean, sometimes peak experiences, you experience them afterward, but, uh, but it, it was. You're right. You're right. Now, having agreed to that, and I wholeheartedly do, and that arrest has affected me materially. Uh, I've never been one to lead the parade. It exacerbated my feeling of insecurity and being less worthy than I think people should be able to be. Mm. Herbert, it was like water off a duck's back mm -hmm. for him. Now, what was the, the significance of the dance? Uh, it was the... the uh, no, it wasn't significant. Boy, it galvanized the gay community into action. Absolutely. Boy, it... it, it mm. One of the things that was really humorous is that the police made this estimate there were 70,000 homosexuals in the city. No, there weren't. But when they advertise all over the, I mean, when it's carried on the wire service that there are 70,000, you've got 70,000 others out in the country who want to come and join that 70,000 uh, here. That's what the wire service is carried on this Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, yeah, I mean, the, you know, San Francisco, the police estimate the population was 70,000. Uh, Has it stopped growing yet? That's right. A consequence. <laughs> I mean, we're still coming. <laughs> so there was an influx of... Of course, yes. And uh, this... I honestly think that it was the match that started the renaissance of awakening, if you will. So Stonewall, which happened in New York, really was quite late. Yes. It was. Mm -hmm. uh, because this, this was as much a confrontation as, as it, it, it didn't have the, some of the violent overtones, but, but we stood up uh, and uh, and we're counted.
In addition to all the attention the New Year's Day confrontation got in the press locally and around the country, the San Francisco Police Department did something that no police department had ever done before. They appointed a liaison to the gay community. That was in 1965, four years before the Stonewall Uprising. 18 years to the day after Herb Donaldson was arrested at California Hall, he was sworn in as a San Francisco Municipal Court judge. Governor Jerry Brown had offered Herb an appointment to the Superior Court, but as Herb explained to me back in 1989, he told the governor that he would rather be on the Municipal Court because that's where you see all the young lawyers. He said, that's where you can help them get their trial experience. That's where you see the little guy get hauled into court. That's where you get the best opportunity to do something. Herb was the first openly gay man to serve as a municipal court judge in the state of California. Herb Donaldson died on December 5, 2008. He was 81 years old. Evander Smith kept a very low profile for the rest of his life, but he wasn't forgotten. Not long before I interviewed him, he had gone for his annual physical. And as Evander told me, his internist said to him, and I quote, I was a medical student at Vanderbilt when I heard the radio report of the dance in San Francisco. You have no idea how good that made me feel. You were a part of it, and I really appreciate that. Evander Smith died on December 6, 2005. He was 83. To learn more about Evander and Herb and the 1965 New Year's Day Ball at California Hall, go to makinggayhistory.com. You'll find information, photos, and links to additional resources. That's also where you can listen to all our previous episodes and sign up for our newsletter. Before I go, I wanted to tell you about a great episode from a new podcast called Kismet. It's a wonderful and surprising story of love taking root despite the crushing pressure of the discredited don't ask, don't tell policy. You can find Kismet in all the places you can find Making Gay History. Making Gay History is a team effort, so I've got a few people to thank, starting with our executive producer, Sarah Birmingham, and our co-producer and guardian angel, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Thanks also to Casey Holford, Jonathan Dozer-Ezel, Will Coley, and Zachary Seltzer. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. A special thank you to Herb Donaldson's dear friend, Louise Swig, for her help with background information and photos. And a special thank you as well to Tim Wilson at the San Francisco Public Library for tracking down a couple of key photographs from the 1965 California Hall Ball that you'll find at makinggayhistory.com. Making Gay History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division. Season two of this podcast is made possible with support from the Ford Foundation, which is on the front lines of social change worldwide. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to Making Gay History on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. So long, until next time. Music